Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Training Data. This is Ryan Lewis. And today we're going to take a little bit of a different tact. If you've listened to our pod in the past, you may have gotten lost in some of the technical information describing how we build data sets or how we build models or how those models can support different venture-backed startups or open source communities. Today we're going to take a little bit of a broader perspective and actually look at what's driving investment into venture-backed communities, more specifically in the commercial space domain. And for those that have followed our work more broadly, Inqtel's work, you'll notice that we've been very active in talking about investments or changes in both the commercial space domain and more broadly in what uh, has been called frontier tech domain. So this is investments in things like drones or unmanned aerial systems, obviously space, AI or artificial intelligence and robotics. And it's something that has evolved rapidly over the course of several years. And it's something that I think merits a discussion in terms of what it means to invest in this domain, what trends are going to be unfolding, and what do we see uh, occurring in the near future. And in order to help us unpack this conversation, uh, I have a real an all-star cast. So first uh, with our guest, so Will Porteous, he's the general partner and COO of RRE. Will, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And we also have a, a new uh, Inqtel uh, person coming on to training data, but not new to the space domain, an original founder of our space club, Tom Gillespie. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Well, Will, I, I think we'll just jump right in. And before we start talking about looking at space or investment trends, let's give us a little background on, on RRE and how you even got invest or interested in just frontier tech and space more specifically. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, and let me just say I'm totally honored to be here. InQtel has been an amazing partner to our companies and to us as a co-investor, and we've been big admirers of, of your activities across a lot of domains. So it's been great to be able to collaborate with InQtel, particularly in the commercial space stuff. Um, so RRE is a 25-year-old early-stage venture capital firm. Uh, think of us as a sort of leading partner working with entrepreneurs really from the earliest days. We're writing 10 to 20 seed checks a year of around a half million dollars at the formative stages of companies, and then probably seven or eight checks of around two and a half to, to seven million dollars where we're getting actively involved, going on the board, and really working with the companies uh, over their life cycle. And we're, uh, we're known for our work in financial technology, uh, space, media, healthcare, IT, and a handful of other sectors. And Tom, just as, as, a, as a level set, you know, from the InQtel side, I know, you know, we've been vocal in talking about work at the applications level, certainly those who have followed our work in the labs or in, in the cosmic domain. But there's actually a pretty broad perspective we've taken from the early days as well, looking at this at the commercial space market. Yeah, so I should say that uh, um, space has always been, I think, important to our customer base. Uh, what's changed in the last few years is that it's become more of a venture capital play. So we only put in typically up to $3 million per transaction, which is not that much money when you think about it in, terms, in the context of space. Um, now that it's become more of a venture play, we have the, uh, the capability to partner with people like RRE and, and co-invest and move these things along. Um, it's always been of interest to our customer base, but now we can actually leverage the Intel model to, to go after these deals. You know, and as someone with a, a software background, you know, when we first started looking at this sector, it was, it was really kind of scary because of just the sheer diversity and just the sheer, not just diversity in, in technical approaches to a particular area, but all the different components that go into making a space ecosystem run. So from 
launch all the way to building a satellite to running a satellite to then analyzing data from it and everything in between. And that's a lot different than just looking to say, does this software as a service model work or not? <laughs> and so when, when, you're, when you first started looking at this, how do you unpack that and say, just what, what's, how am I going to build a strategy around this? Or do you maybe pick certain subsectors you're interested in and, and drive home on that? Or talk a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, for background, um, we have been active hardware and systems investors throughout the 25-year history of the firm. So that's everything from 3D printing to solid-state storage to carrier-grade networking and communications technologies, a lot of hardware stuff. And so about five years ago, we started to see a lot of company formation in the satellite area. A lot of small sat deals started crossing our desk. And our model allows us to essentially task a team to go off and research a sector. A partner and a principal will go take six months to a year and literally go talk to people in the industry and just try and get a sense of, of how things are developing. And so we decided to do that in space in 2013 and part of 14. And that exercise showed us some things that frankly kind of blew our mind. We were stunned to realize how slow the actual pace of innovation was in moving capabilities from Earth onto satellites. We were amazed at how little innovation was actually happening on the major platforms. And so we, we as investors look for these, uh, what we like to call insertion points, a, a situation where there's sort of building pressure to create a new set of capabilities, and the legacy industry is not set up to do that. And what we saw in, in the satellite industry in particular was like few opportunities we've ever seen. Um, the, the, the cost down opportunity was not one, but two orders of magnitude in terms of creating uh, a space-based capability using newer technologies. And we had to go off and understand the launch market and understand the component supply chain. And we, as you pointed out a minute ago, we saw a lot of things that were not fully formed. But we also realized in the process that it was a sector that probably wouldn't be overwhelmed by capital. And so if we were able to get a core group of companies capitalized, they would have an exceptional opportunity uh, to make a run at that insertion point. And that's really what we've been engaged on uh, over the last four or five years. Did you think uh, it wouldn't get overwhelmed simply just because it's kind of uh, in some ways maybe a, a niche sort of a market and maybe that would turn off certain investors or maybe it's just so complex people say I don't know what's going on and I just I can't understand it so I'm gonna walk away well I think we realized after a year of studying the sector that uh, that was a lot of knowledge we'd accumulated and that many investors and particularly larger investment firms with risk-averse investment committees would look at that and say that looks really hard, and yeah. let's just go put the money somewhere else, maybe in a more familiar domain, and let's see what might come out of it. And we're, we're actually okay with that, because we look at, uh, at other categories in the venture universe, and we see them being, frankly, overwhelmed by the amount of available capital, yeah. the number of competitors, and that creates kind of a, a race to zero in some new market opportunities. That hasn't happened in the satellite industry, I'm, I'm very glad to say, and I think part of it is that... It, you have to you have to work at this for a while before you get comfortable making investment decisions. Yeah, and then Tom, you know, internally, right, we had a fair amount of discussion of our own, just in terms of how we w wanted to approach this sector, or at least explain it to uh, the different groups that we work with. 
Yeah, I think our experience parallels Will's in, in some ways. In that, uh, probably about the same time frame, maybe 2013, 2014, we actually made a couple of opportunistic investments prior to that point in, in the commercial space sector. But at that point, I think we started to realize that there was more happening. And we had a team of folks, obviously, including you, Ryan, that got together and started to think about, you know, what's happening in this sector? Um, how do we go out and reach for the companies that we see getting funded and see if there's something we might want to, uh, might want to uh, invest in? And we came at it from an architectural approach saying, let's piece together all these companies in some way that makes sense, figure out what matters to our customers, where the white space is in terms of what we need to invest in, and then execute on that. And that's what I think we've done in the last you know, five, six plus years, uh, is really go after, after the sector systematically. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that struck me, right, that was different than looking at other domains was maybe we were forcing it. So I'm curious what you think here, Will, is it was pretty clear early on that a lot of these companies were going to be somewhat interdependent upon each other. So if, if I'm, as, as for all those listening, right, if let's say we were creating a, a, a small satellite company, we would certainly want more uh, launch availability as well. And so it's in our interest to see another company form uh, that would essentially help build out the entire new space ecosystem. That's not something that, at least in my mind, I had thought of uh, coming into this. And I, I didn't know, I'm curious if you'd kind of identified that early on, Will, or if that's something you've just seen uh, evolve over time. You know, it was something we recognized really early on. And I, it, the, the thing that it reminded me of was actually the late 90s. So in the, in the, in the best sort of halcyon days of the dot-com era, you had this amazing level of interdependency among the companies. You had e-commerce companies that were leasing all their servers from new hardware companies. And the new hardware companies, their whole sort of financing model was contingent on their, their access to cheap debt. And when one started to suffer, the, they all started to suffer. And one of, the, one of the things we worried about early on in the sector, and frankly still worry about, is the, the potential for cascading uh, yeah. events, one way, both one way or the other, positive or negative. And um, in general, the cycle's been positive for the companies uh, in the sector. We, um, we like, actually, full-stack opportunities, if you will, one where you're, you're focused on component-level innovation, core systems innovation, and the software that sits on top of it. I do see, and I'm sure Tom sees, a lot of companies who, whose ultimate opportunity is predicated on the success of other companies. A great example of this is the analytics layer, yep. focused on geospatial information, where you've got a lot of brilliant people doing great work waiting for a data set that has higher frequency or greater precision than what is has been available and frankly what may be available today. Those companies are essentially waiting for the, the crucial input to come from the rest of the ecosystem. And I worry that there's a sort of they have to they have to get financed and remain financed while we bring the rest of those capabilities online. Yeah and I think on our end certainly is a group that on that analytics piece specifically, as a group that's open source data, put out a lot of code, um, and had that been picked up by a variety of porcos, you know, we've tried to help at least uh, compartmentalize what can be done maybe in the near term, while some of these other more complex analytic solutions uh, are going to be required as they come along line with more data. And I, I, 
sometimes people ask us, well, wh- you know, why start with uh, some of these smaller problems? And our, our take's always been, because that serves as the foundation for when some of these bigger data sets come in place. Uh, automatically extracting information out of one image is a little bit more tractable than out of 100 or 1,000 images. So let's start there and get the foundation set. Um, and it's, it's been cool just to see how much growth has occurred in that sector just from that. Um, and your, I thought your earlier point was great when you were stunned at just how little innovations occurred, uh, or the, I guess, as you said, the pace of innovation. I think that sa- uh, same level uh, of astonishment, we saw that in the analytics domain. I was like, how is this not uh, more diffuse already? And I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm curious in, in your thought, uh, on that is you mentioned full stack companies. One of the things that generated a lot of uh, press, this was back in like 2016, I think, Tom, was when people were all trying to mimic sort of the SpaceX model, where everything's completely integrated, so we're going to build our own stuff, uh, fly and manage it, and we're going to have our own analytics. And one thing that you know we say internally is, you know, you can only have so many miracles. Building a small <laughs> set that works, it, that's a huge win. It is, and I'm not trying to minimize it. But then figuring out how machine learning works with the dynamic data set, that's a miracle in and of itself, too. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are, both your thoughts on this. So, yeah, I think these things go on cycles, actually. So I think um, we saw that probably in 2016 or so. Uh, and then I think we've seen people kind of you know, come and go with how much they're doing in any given stack. I think, actually, the companies that are going to be successful going forward um, may end up doing more than they're doing right now. So I look at, I'll give you an example, like in the launch sector, you know, if you start out as a small satellite launch vehicle, um, is that all you're going to be doing five years from now? It may not be. So I think a lot of the companies in this sector, if they're doing it right, will start to branch into other areas and find find new value. But they've got to be good at something first before they yeah. go down that path. I think Tom's exactly right. I think that most of us who came into this sector without a long experience in the space sector wanted to believe that there was going to be a lot more infrastructure to build on than it turned out there actually was. And an RE made investment in a company called Spire, which has launched uh, about uh, 84, uh, has 84 uh, operational small sats today. And um, this is all public information that Peter has talked about. But when we, when we were oh, getting the company up and running, we were buying radios from vendors that turned out to not be able to deliver quality and timely. Uh, we were um, expecting to work with uh, launch providers and with launch partners whose schedules kept slipping. And over time, the company had to become more and more vertically integrated in order to control its own destiny and did a lot of smart things on the manufacturing side, built a lot of its own component technologies, and created a very innovative launch strategy where they would buy options on a lot of future launch uh, opportunities. The result is that today in 2019, they actually license out some of those components to other satellite companies, and they are uh, a sought-after partner uh, by newer emerging companies around launch strategy. So a lot of the capabilities that they've had to develop, they've now turned into other businesses uh, to help them grow. And that's kind of, that's interesting. I I never, um, it's it's funny to think that companies that were focused on a very niche application have now become almost a whole new uh, industrial uh, base for the next generation uh, of startups. I mean, because I'm curious what your thought, how do you see that sort of playing out in the next couple of years? Because eventually, you know, you could have a, a bunch of vertically integrated companies that are all trying to have their sort of product lines or 
is you see kind of like what happened in the 90s. Eventually, a lot of the big aerospace firms kind of came in, consolidated a lot, and then you had sort of a bifurcated market. You had big aerospace, and then you had kind of one like smaller sort of custom shops. I mean, where do you kind of see this going? I mean, a big take for us, and Tom, you can talk about this much better than I is, is we kind of see this as almost a new whole tier of uh, uh, supply chain. So you'll have sort of custom, sort of maybe even more academic work, sort of now the new small sat or what we call it, you know, the space 3.0, and then you have sort of big traditional aerospace. Yeah, I, I think as part of the, um, our thesis in general is that this sector is not going to wholesale replace what's already happening in, in sort of traditional space. It's really additive. Um, and I think part of the piece that's so unique about this sector is that, uh, you know, to Will's point, you can really, there are companies out there right now that know how to um, manufacture things very quickly, get things on orbit very quickly, and that knowledge in itself is is really valuable. And so you'll, we are seeing, you know, the rest of the sector kind of look to these folks and say, you know, can you kind of coach me on how I do this? And there's value in being able to, to, um, to answer those questions. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a very kind of unique uh, layer to the, the aerospace market. Not to put too fine a point on it, but think about the innovation cycle and what Tom just described, right? So Spire, just to continue to pick on them as, a, as an example, Spire launches one or once or twice every quarter. They do a new generation of their hardware about every six months. They do a software release about every six weeks. They are innovating at, at, in a rapid mode, unlike anything the industry is used to, and that has a ton of dividends. Um, it's an innovation model and, a, and an engineering model that's, frankly, very foreign, I think, to big aerospace. And it, it's taking them up a curve from a performance standpoint faster than you typically see in the satellite industry. Let me come back to your question, though, because I think there is a catalyst on the horizon that will really impact the supply chain, and that is the mega constellations, right? Yep. Once you start building thousands of identical satellites, then you really have pressure to, to standardize componentry in a way that we haven't seen yet and be able to mass produce that componentry. And it may just be limited to solar panels and propulsion systems and a few discrete uh, high value segments of the satellite. But I think that's gonna be a massive catalyst for the sector uh, when, when, when we do get there. And, uh, and I I, I apologize for having asked this, but have there has there been some momentum towards sort of standardization on this? I if there has, I, I haven't followed it, and, and I feel feel bad that I haven't. Uh, you know, I don't think there really has, and it's one of the sort of real head scratchers on this. I think you see out of kind of OneWeb's manufacturing activity, you see a lot of them taking in sort of partners or potential partners, and those may become standard sort of choices that they make uh, in the design of their spacecraft. Um, you kind of want to quote Bill Gates for a second. You know, standards are our market share. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the solar panel provider or the propulsion system provider that gets chosen, I think, will automatically have a lot of market power, just about yeah. two, two categories. Uh, so I think that's a moment we're anticipating, and we don't yet know quite when it's going to happen, but I think it will transform uh, a lot of what we, we do and a lot of what our companies do. And they may be, there may be things that they have to do, components that they have to make themselves today that they won't be making in a year or two because there's something very good that's very cheap of very high quality. I'd add to that, but also I should note that I think like any piece of this sector, 
um, not all these constellations are going to make it ultimately. So they're not all going to go up, and as currently described, um, some may never go up at all. We'll have to see. But I think even just the the amount of traction we already see is going to be helpful in terms of the the uh, manufacturing scale for sure. Absolutely. And I, to bring it back to the investment piece, because I think it it that's a good pivot point as we start looking at what's next uh, for this industry. But I have to ask, you know, and I'm so biased here; it's irrelevant. But space is cool. I mean, I uh, part of the reason I thought it, we thought it was really cool is just the mission patches alone. I know I'm all in on, I'm all in on that. That's actually a true story. Yeah, that's a true story. <laughs> ask anyone; I collect them. Good. Um, I'm just curious, you know, when you were first going out and you did all this work, were some of your limited partners or other people were they just interested in this, just beyond the normal interest that you would have in an investment, but just saying, "Wow, this is." really cool. I can watch launch. I can use the service in a different way than uh, perhaps something that they're more used to uh, seeing uh, an investment in. Uh, so it's an interesting question. I, I gave our first presentation to our LPs about the satellite sector, uh, I think, four years ago. And I think there were, I got, in response, I got a lot of head scratching and sort of quizzical looks. Um, Interestingly, a lot of our uh, overseas partners uh, who affiliated with sovereign wealth funds who have an interest in the sort of strategic capabilities of innovation in space were among the first to show an interest. And there's, you know, a lot of the innovation that we've seen in the sector has come either on the financing side or on the manufacturing side. There's been a lot of international partnerships that have enabled this great wave of companies right now. Um, but my LPs, by and large, they they saw it as well. This sounds interesting, you know. Let let's see some good businesses emerge from it. Got it. Well, and I'm, so now that you've built sort of this this practice and you have a good portfolio and you've done a lot of thinking around uh, this sector, how do you? What does that mean now that we're kind of getting on the other side of, of the of the industry? So back when you were first looking at it, and not long after when we started building out our architecture, as Tom mentioned, you know, that was really just at the beginning of what one, could sell, what one could say is like the hype cycle. As we now get into real products coming on to market, as you're talking about, with much more robust data sets, whether they be remote sensing or in the SATCOM uh, market, you're now seeing companies need uh, larger capital rounds, um, and they're also being now judged as their product comes in. It's no longer aspirational. How does that look in the market today? And, and also, how does, from a financing perspective, and how does that also impact the next generation of startups that are looking to engage in this sector? Well, so as we sit here in the fall of 2019, uh, there are a lot of later stage financings underway across the sector. Companies that got their Series A and B financing in the 15, 16, 17 time have continued to need to raise money. And uh, not all of those companies are going to be able to raise all of the money that they want to execute on their plans. Uh, at the same time, I think we are seeing a number of major financings, particularly at Series D, that have closed and been announced and that are in the midst of closing right now that will ensure uh, the long-term viability of a lot of the capabilities we've been talking about here. So. Uh, we are excited to see those companies getting funded to profitability, uh, and I think it, it bodes well for the long-term future of the industry. This is a, a cyclical business, though, and I think we have to recognize that not all of these companies 
many good companies uh, are going to make it through. Tom? Yeah, I'd like to maybe tie this into the last question as well. But, um, you know, the premise coming into this a few years ago was that space is a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier to get up there and get things done and make, you know, interesting things happen. And that's true, but it's not cheap. And what you find along the way is that, you know, if you think you need a certain amount of capital, oftentimes you need the double the amount you think you need. If you think your timelines are a certain time, time frame, then often you have to double the time frames. So nothing quite goes the way you think it's going to go, even with this kind of new space uh, approach to things. And so I think that, you know, that really affects the companies that we invest in. Um, you know, these companies are startups. They need to, you know, get their assets on orbit. They need to start generating revenues from, from the assets and use that to, to raise the next round of funding and kind of hit their milestones. And that's not easy. And so a lot of these companies are going to uh, find that challenging. Um, and I think back to the, the previous question on the, the different investors, um, I think folks like RRE, and I'll throw you know, Bessemer and Lux Capital and Coastal and a few others out there, um, were early in investing in the sector. I think there's a group that kind of came behind that that did think that space was really cool, maybe did some deals that shouldn't have been done, and I think some of those are the ones that are going to hit the skids and, and, uh, and not get funded. We'll have to see. But um, you, you really have to execute well. You have to have runway. And you have to uh, just expect that things aren't going to go exactly to plan. Yeah, and I think that that concept of runway is, uh, has really hit home just in the last uh, two years. As we've, especially someone who's focused more on the analytics side, you know, I'm constantly looking for data sets, and um, you know, the ability for those to be bought or at least be very commercially available hasn't occurred at the timeline that we, at least I know that we wanted, which is we wanted it as soon as we could get it. The sort of the one of the questions I have is, what have been some of the big, what are some of the challenges, right, that have, that have held up sort of that product development, which then impacts uh, the ability to raise additional capital? I mean, one that runs to mind immediately and that we hear everywhere, right, is just getting access to, to space, getting up there uh, from a launch perspective. But I know that's not the only one. Look, I think access to space and then access to capital have been the two fundamental limiters, right? If, if I could wave a magic wand and simplify the capital raising process for our portfolio companies, I could return 2x on, on that product, productivity time, right? The amount of time our CEOs and CFOs spend out there working that process is a huge time sink. Yeah. So that that is actually number one, I think. Um, as I look at the, the, the launch question, um, I, I think that the companies that have really been at this for a while have really mastered their launch strategy. They, they work with a lot of operators, both U.S. and overseas. Uh, they are, are quick to manage the launch calendar, calendar. They create fungible options for themselves. They have a very sophisticated approach to this. Um, the failure mode on the launch risk is to think that you're just going to buy a launch and everything's going to go yeah. <laughs> go yeah. on time and as you expect. Uh, and and I think that that secret is out. Uh, nobody who's really building a, a space capability today is is expecting things to be that easy. Yeah, as much as I I remember the right when we were first looking at this, this sector, I remember you know we heard this this pitch on people saying well you could book online and be easy as kayak and i'm like i so want to believe that and, <laughs> and, and it just uh, it's come a long way but uh that even shows some of our naivete when we first started looking at this and and i'm curious you know will re has invested in as you're saying in in other uh hardware domains 
do you see these sorts of timeline challenges in, in other sectors in which you've invested in where you said, all right, you know, here's the runway we're kind of giving, but we're seeing that slide. Um, are you seeing some, maybe some analogs into other areas you looked at? I know, Tom, you've obviously led a lot of our investments in, in uh, what we call our field uh, tech practice, which also does um, a whole variety of hardware-specific investments. Well, I, I think for frontier technologies generally, as distinct from hardware and systems, there's just a lot more interdependency that means that things take longer and cost more. And we as investors, as venture investors, we know how many, how much is unknown on the day we invest. And because we're early stage investors, we're used to the fact that everything is going to take longer and cost more than you ever think. And so plan for that. That's one thing you actually know to be true yeah. <laughs> on day one. Things will not go the way you expect. I think there's been a bit more of that in the, in the frontier sector because there are so many full stack opportunities here that require companies to be good at a lot of things. And there are, there are a lot of interdependencies across the sector. Yeah, I'd say... Um, I guess two answers. One is in terms of the commercial space sector, you know, it definitely is it sort of in its own category in terms of the risk of uh, timeline slippage and, you know, the need for additional capital. Um, having said that, there are elements of, of all pieces of different autonomous systems that we look at that, that have some of the same kind of uh, category risk. Um, and I think one of the things we haven't touched on as well, and it applies to space uh, plus autonomous systems in general, is the regulatory side. So it's, uh, you know, there's some uncertainty there that you need to build in. Uh, so you think you've got a certain timeline to go, you know, get things operational and, and, and build up on, on revenues, and then something can come out of the blue and, and you know, extend your timeline quite a bit. Yeah, I think one of the things that has been uh, encouraging to see is how much, at least acknowledgement, as we talk about the commercial space sector in the United States, at least acknowledgement from both the FCC as well as NOAA and some of the other regulatory bodies that their processes need to change. Essentially going back to the timeline question about, you know, original or incumbent innovation versus new, a lot of their processes and timelines were built for, for years. And so as a result, it worked pretty well for those systems, but certainly didn't work well for, and you're talking about the Spire cadence. Well, it, none, of that, none of that infrastructure or oversight was geared. Uh, for that. I think there's, particularly with the, the arrival or at least some level of uh, operationalization. Is that an actual word, by the way? I use that word. <laughs> Go with it. Go. All right. So it's real. Uh, with uh, the reality of these mega constellations, at least at initial operating capacity, uh, I think that's going to bring a whole new level of discussion around potential interference issues with constellations and things to that effect. I'm encouraged by it, but I know a lot of companies have said it was a major inhibitor uh, to some of their early work um, in the sector. So I think that's a good thing that there's been some change, but I, I suspect that there'll be a lot more discussions once you start seeing, uh, at least on the mega side, more than just a couple prototypes go up there and, and deploy. And, I, and I'll, I'll turn that into a question. I'm curious, is this something that some of the companies that uh, you're advising, is, is that something they, they think about or they're, they're concerned about that perhaps they'll be, for lack of better words, crowded out um, from a uh, regulatory perspective? I think for our portfolio companies, uh, most of them recognize that the regulatory 
domain was was a place where they had to have a lot of expertise and a lot of engagement. They needed to take it seriously. It's sort of like what we were saying about the launch sector earlier. If you're if you believe it's just going to be turnkey and easy for you, you're being naive. So the companies like Spire and Planet went to the regulators in the 15, 16, 17 timeframe and said, look, we're coming. We're going to need a lot of, of licenses. We're going to sit with you and kind of figure out how we do you know, big block programs um, so that we can get through the regulatory approval process quickly. And there was a great collaborative process that emerged there. And I, I think Planet Inspire did a lot to help the rest of the industry and, and make it easier for people to come along behind them. Um, I do, the, the, the mega constellations are going to take this up by an order of magnitude. And I think it's going to be a different kind of conversation. And I, I don't know about the crowding out you described, but I can see how some smaller companies would, would feel like that's a potential risk. Yeah. And another, or sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, just say, so the regulatory regime that we have right now is obviously built for a much different model. And I think even the, the people within the government recognize that. And, and honestly, most of them are trying to do the right thing and kind of move things along and, and change the way they go, go about business. I think folks like Spire and Planet have really plowed the ground for uh, people behind them. Um, but I think on the government side, there there are some elements of the government that really, you know, that recognize things need to change and and, uh, and they're going after uh, how to make things better for, the, for new space companies. And so, Will, you mentioned as, you know, you're feeling positive about the outlook um, of, from a financing perspective. That's something that, that we've talked a lot about internally. And so that, that's really exciting to finally see us kind of get over uh, that hump from uh, looking at the sector for years. You know, one of the things, though, I'm curious your thoughts on the impact of some of the market dynamics with current incumbent companies. So we've seen increased uh, either joint partnerships, joint ventures, or in some cases, although albeit more limited, uh, some just direct acquisitions from larger incumbent companies uh, in the aerospace community. Is, is that something that, how do you think that will influence dynamics going forward? Do you see that as a trend that is going to continue, or is that just perhaps uh, an action in the market right now with incumbent players trying to figure out where they fit in in this new, uh, in this new economy? I, I see a lot of smart corporate development groups in aerospace and in the satellite industry uh, covering these good companies very well. Um, they've made small strategic investments. They've hatched joint ventures together. They have joint go-to-market plans. And all of that uh, is an expression of a realization in those big companies that the small sat operating model represents some significant long-term challenges because it has a lot of the pricing power that uh, that they have had for much bigger assets in the past without the cost structure underneath it. And that's a big deal. Um, these satellite businesses are going to look very different than satellite businesses of the past. They should be able to command uh, generous shares of the revenues that used to go to more expensive assets and be able to turn a lot more of them into cash flow and fund their next generation of innovation much more easily. So I think we're in an era where a lot of partnerships are being solidified and the small sat companies that emerge out of this period are going to be in a great position to control their own destiny. And that's why I see so many big aerospace groups sort of putting some chips down right now, because I think they recognize that, that these companies aren't going to be, aren't going to need them, frankly, um, before too long. Yeah, I, I think um, 
you know, you, you see it from both the company's angle and then also the, the uh, aerospace angle. But um, the question is for some of these corporate development groups, when do they come into these companies and invest? Um, you know, what stage uh, is this ultimately leading to an acquisition down the line? If it does, you know, what does that mean for the culture of that the given startup? Because they're really completely different places. And so um, I think all these things are getting debated along the way in terms of uh, funding rounds from really from Series A on because I've seen a number of companies that have brought in aerospace companies pretty early on. And I think that changes a little bit of the dynamic in the boardroom and kind of where the company ultimately goes. Uh, I've seen other instances where they've kind of pushed that off. And to Will's point, these are very capable people in, in these corporate development groups. But the question on the startup side, I think, is when you engage with them. Got it. You know, so we've printed a, a pretty kind of exciting picture for the sector, right? So we have product coming to market that's much more mature. We have sort of financing that's allowing them to get to profitability, potential uh, partnerships or other agreements or ventures that allow them to perhaps reach new markets. So as we look ahead to how these companies reach profitability, one of the big questions, and this is something I know we've all talked a lot about, is where are they sort of the, the key markets? And then one thing that we've always found that's really kind of compelling about this sector is that it addresses sort of current needs, but it also is aspirational in the sense that it is looking to create new markets, uh, essentially introduce consumers to new products and services that perhaps they're not familiar with, uh, whether that be remote sensing data or, or uh, communications. Uh, one of the key drivers, right, and this is obviously one of the reasons Inkytel's been focused in this sector for a while, in, his, in the historic remote sensing domain has been the U.S. government. I'm curious, is in the conversations you've had with your companies, how do they view sort of the role of the government in the near term, perhaps vice the long term? Um, and is that something that's uh, perhaps a deliberate part in their strategy? So, uh, look, I think for our companies, um, the desire has always been there to be a, a great supplier to U.S. government customers. And um, always there's a desire to put the U.S. government's interests first in terms of, in terms of um, new capabilities and go-to-market. At the same time, this generation of companies are building their businesses without a dependence on U.S. government customers, if that makes sense. There's a realization that they have to be able to run their own businesses well, and that probably means they're going to have a lot of commercial customers, and they're going to have foreign government customers. And I think the the, the reality of a lot of, of the small sat companies is that they are um, receiving a lot of inbound demand. Some of that inbound demand is coming from U.S. government customers. Some of it's coming from foreign government customers, and some of it's commercial. And they're going to build a uh, diversified book of business um, that can help them grow profitably over time. And the U.S. government may be the most favored customer in that world, but it won't be the only one. You're right. You probably remember this, but some of the first companies we spoke with five, six years ago came to us and said, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you guys, but we're really not at all focused on the government. We're just 100% commercial. And, you know, I think as time went on, they realized that they needed to have some angle on the government as well. Uh, and, and that's proved to be the case. So I, th I don't think at this point you can build, for the most part, a purely commercial business. I think the government's going to be a piece of what you do in this sector. Um, to Will's point, it you know, it shouldn't be the only customer. It should be maybe an anchor tenant in some cases, but really it's got to be a blend. And so I think that's, you know, clearly that's what we're looking for in, in our model of investing. But I think that's the best approach right now. The, the U.S. government is going to be a part of the story 
hopefully it's not the only part of the story. And so to, to close it out, you know, as, as, as you're looking at continuing investing in, in this sector, so I think a lot of, both of you sort of, I think, put it very well in the sense that a lot of these first companies sort of laid the groundwork from whether it's product development, supply chain, financing, regulation. Now that those paths have been laid, so to speak, what are some of the, the kind of the new opportunities that are coming out, whether it be at the component level, uh, maybe it's just purely at the application level that you are following that you're particularly excited about right now, to the extent that you can share? <laughs> well, I, I think we're, we're excited. I won't even say at the company level. We're excited at the product level for a lot of the data fusion opportunities that we see. So when, when you improve the sort of the frequency of a lot of these data sets and the diversity of a lot of these data sets, the, the, the integrations are kind of mind-blowing in terms of the insights you can generate. And all of that, to me, doesn't take a lot of capital. It doesn't take a lot of people. Uh, we, we, so we, 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 we are rapidly coming to the point where we've got this substrate in place that is producing an enormous amount of interesting information and data. We're going to build a lot of great applications on top of that. Uh, and some of them will be companies, and some of them will just be applications that serve us all. Yeah, I look across a few things. Uh, one is clearly that piece of it, that's an analytics piece. You know, what can you do with data that are coming off these the, coming off these sensors? Uh, also, I think um, you know, in space support services is what we're calling it. So, you know, what's happening up there? What can you do actually in space that you couldn't do before? What can you make things up there? Um, how do you deal with the traffic up there? Uh, there are pieces of you know, we see a lot of uh, you know, sort of the the space tug kind of idea. We see. Uh, a lot of propulsion deals, so you may put propulsion on, on kind of everything that goes up and then be able to deorbit it. Uh, things like that are interesting. And then I, I guess the last piece, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think there are some companies, and, and Launch is a good example, where you know they have a certain capability right now. It enables them to do other things when up there. You know, Where do you take that, uh, that ability? And so I think a lot of the companies that we look at as sort of doing one thing pretty well right now may start to... You know, uh, go across different areas and, and, and look at other things. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that, one, that we can live in a world where a space tug is real, I'm just, <laughs> right. I'm just really happy about that. Like, that was something I've been wanting a long time, so that's cool. And then uh, the second thing is, is absolutely, if you just look at anything in the geospatial domain, just what's happened in just the last few years, purely in open source, nothing even on the proprietary side, it, it completely surpassed any of our estimates in terms of what we thought would be capable from some of these analytic packages. And so I'm really excited to see where uh, companies in your portfolio go, as well as the next generation. And Will and Tom, I really appreciate both your time. Great to have you here. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having All us. Right. Take care. Space Club Rule 24, I don't understand. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. 
A uh, big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inky Tells Marketing Group. Also a shout out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening and take care.